Well, again, as Peter said, happy July 4th. Welcome. I'm glad that in the midst of fireworks and hot dogs, you're here. <laughs> that you made it. Maybe you're like, I just need a break from all the things I did this weekend. And whether or not that's true, I'm just glad that you're with us. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, I'm excited because July 4th for uh, me is really interesting with a newborn. So that's fun to figure out how do you do fireworks and newborns. I don't know if they go together. Uh, I'm about to find out today, though. <laughs> this is a true human experiment later. Uh, we're headed out to Grand Haven to enjoy the sun and fireworks and all that fun stuff. I'm sure you are, too. It's funny because uh, for some reason, I, I don't know if it's just I'm getting older or if it's I've got a kid now or uh, because of the weirdness of last year, I, I'm just especially thankful for days like today that remind us of what an incredible privilege we have uh, to live in America and uh, to experience moments of worship like this that to some of our global neighbors would be very foreign and very uh, different in, in these circumstances. Uh, we were joking, Lindsay and I, the, uh, a couple weeks ago, just how it's so easy to let some of our personal freedoms become the highest value for our lives. We have friends we kind of make fun of who just chase after certain things that it's like, oh, finally, I'll get to be free when I hit this mark. And maybe some of you have, have friends or people in your family like this. We, we have friends who are obsessed with this thing called the FIRE movement. Has anyone heard of this yet? So the, the FIRE movement stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. So people that are literally seeking to retire and have full passive incomes by 35, 40, 45, and just to be able to travel and literally do whatever they want to do. I don't even know what you do at that point when you have no career or anything, but do whatever you want to do, I guess, like the fire movement, uh, which is really like the ultimate financial freedom. That's what they say. We are pursuing full financial uh, freedom. My dad is Canadian and became naturalized when we lived here in Grand Rapids as an American citizen, had to forsake all of his Canadian rights to become an American citizen. For him, it was a path to being a part of the freest country on the planet. Like for him, that was a chase, and there's other people who've gone through that journey as well. For some of you maybe sitting here, uh, the perfect personal freedom kind of culmination came when you moved out of your parents' house. That moment where you finally said, you know what, I'm signing the contract. I'm getting an apartment. Or as a parent, you're like, hey, I am signing the contract for you. <laughs> Go get your own apartment. <laughs> See you later. It's been a great 18 years. I don't know where you're at with that, um, but I'll be praying for you regardless. Uh, it's funny because there's other people, and I, I've even talked to some of my friends who are like, finally, I got a career where they give me a 401k match. It's, it's just the best thing ever. Like I'm, I'm going to have full stocked retirement. I can't wait. And to them, full freedom is, well, once I hit 65 or 70 or 75, then I'll be free. I don't have to work in this, but I've got the 401k kind of stacked away in the corner. I can't wait to get there. For some of us, it's a lakefront cottage or a property we've always wanted or a, a mower we've always wanted or a car you've always wanted or whatever it is. But it's funny how it's so easy to get sucked in to just making those pursuits of personal freedom, which really are what those are. They're enjoying, enjoying personal freedoms as the highest value. And I stand on July 4th, and I think about hundreds of years ago, some of the pursuits of, of American freedom that had to take place so you and I could sit here in rooms like this. One of the stories I've never heard about in, in the Revolutionary War, and I love history, is, is a story about a group of men from Baltimore, Maryland called the Maryland 400. So the Maryland 400 were literally a group of young businessmen, agricultural workers, uh, blue-collar people who essentially heard that there was a final stand taking place in, in modern-day Brooklyn. So in Brooklyn, New York, the Park Slope neighborhood, if you've ever been to New York City, you may have been through Park Slope. Park Slope neighborhood is still there today. You can actually see the house, like the stone building 
that Cornwallis, the British commander at the time, they literally, Britain had sent, just weeks after signing the Declaration of Independence, said, that's cute that you guys signed that. We're going to send 10,000 British troops across the water and crush out the revolution. And so they literally do that. They send 10,000 British troops into the New York City at the time and decide if we can finish Washington and the rest of his men here, they're not going to be able to evacuate to other parts of the state and kind of regroup and then go back. If we just wipe, wipe them out here, this thing is over. That's cute. They have their little document, but they're not going to make it. Like we're going to take everybody they have. And so literally this is this is impending. Cornwallis is there and uh, you can still go. These Maryland heroes, 400 of them decide we're going to make the trek from Baltimore, Maryland to Brooklyn, New York, and we're going to personally raid this house. This is a true story. I've never heard this in American history class. Maryland 400 get together and they go, and the combat is so close. I mean, literally there are hundreds of British troops surrounding this stone house in the Park Slope neighborhood of Brooklyn that they don't even use guns. If you think about modern technologies of guns, they've obviously advanced to be much quicker, but in the day it was like, shoot, okay, give me like 10 minutes and I'll be reloaded and we can do this again. Uh, so this is 1770s warfare. So they decide we're going to literally just fix bayonets to rifles and take swords and knives that we have, and we're going to personally rush this house. And so they do. They literally rush the house. 256 of them die in the pursuit, but about 100 or so of them live through this, and it eventually turns the tide of the revolutionary movement in America you and I are sitting here today because of people in the Maryland 400. And yet I've never heard that story. What's fascinating to me about that story is not just the courage and bravery of these men, right? They know, and there's going to be a bulk of us that lose our lives in this. We're clearly outnumbered here. But it was that they left personal freedoms in Baltimore as business owners, as family men, as religious leaders, and decided we have to secure American freedom. There's something bigger than my personal freedom. Because in Baltimore, I mean, it was British run. There was security. There was banking opportunities. There was economic security there. There was families that they had. I mean, the British were not trying to ruin their lives. They were just trying to rule their lives. And so the, the Maryland 400 decided, you know, there's something bigger at stake here. The Maryland 400 wanted real freedom real freedom. And you and I are sitting on the other side. Just six weeks later, after this declaration is signed, these men make this heroic journey and defeat Cornwallis. Washington's able to evacuate the rest of troops into another part of New York City and eventually recalibrate and defeat the British just weeks later. And so I think about that, and I think about just the fact that, that so many of us sit here believing that because we just live in America, maybe that we're free. But what if in your life, not, not in our government, but in your life, spiritually, relationally, emotionally, what if you weren't as free as you believe? What if I'm not as free as I believe? I live in America, a country of great freedoms, but what if there's actually things that are not free in my life? And this draws us, I think the answer to that question is found in Psalm 1. It's in one of the most short psalms, which is why I like it. <laughs> it's easy to remember. It's easy to read. It's easy to understand. But really, Psalm 1 is an introductory psalm. Psalm 1 was written probably years later after the rest of these psalms were compiled together. And Psalm 1 is kind of a summary of all the psalms that come after it. 
We're not even sure who authored this specific psalm, but this is kind of the highlights. It's the, it's the way to get the Cliff Notes version. How many of you cheated in high school, didn't read the book and read Cliff Notes? Okay, just me. All right, sweet. Uh, that's, that's what I did but because I didn't like to read and I wasn't good at any of my classes, so I decided I'm going to do that. But this is kind of the giveaway to the rest of the psalms. It literally was, it's the intro to everything else that the psalms are going to be about. And this is how it starts. We read this just a minute ago. Blessed is the one. Do you hear Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount here? Blessed are those. Right? It's the same kind of language. You are literally, in Hebrew, happy. You're happy when you do these things. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, wicked sinners, mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord who meditates on his law day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, not so the wicked. They are like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Don't think negative here. Think Hebrew idea of judgment was actually the, the second coming. It was like the fulfillment of God's kingdom. They're not going to stand there, nor sinners in the assembly, the gathering of righteous people. But the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, and the way of the wicked leads to destruction. What I think is interesting, there's some clues here on how you and I can actually find and gain real freedom in our lives, real holistic soul-level freedom. And he kind of gives it away in the beginning, which I really like. I like when they give away the answers early. It makes me feel like I'm smarter, <laughs> even though that's not true. It just, it helps me a little bit because if you dig into this psalm, and there's only six verses to dig into, but if you start in the beginning, you see that, that the psalmist is writing, blessed is the one, happy is the one who does not do these things. Walk in step with the wicked, stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. Two different actions. One are kind of active and one are kind of, one's passive, right? Sit or stand are two different ideas. So what the psalmist is saying essentially here is that it's not just about, the wicked are not merely people who commit injustice, right? When we use the word wicked, we think like awful, like serial killer, like massive terrorist attack. We think wicked, and those things are wicked. But, but the idea here in Psalm 1 is not merely people who commit these awful acts or, or deep injustices, but also those who are bent inward on themselves, who actually think about themselves more than others, who actually prioritize, prioritize their freedoms over, over real freedoms, who decide that their way is the best way. But as you trace through the psalm, what is the answer? What does the blessed way look like? And he says in verse 3 that it's like a person planted or deeply rooted by streams of living water. That's the picture of the blessed way. That's the picture of a person who's fully aligned with God and his law. They actually flourish in the midst of, of struggle, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of situations that are not advantageous to their flourishing, in the, in the midst of all these things. The blessed person, when they walk in the way of the blessed man and the blessed woman, they're like a tree planted by streams of living water. I've had friends who've traveled to the Middle East, and I haven't been there, uh, but I've been to a few countries near it. And, and it's funny, really interesting, because you can literally find massive deserts. I mean, some of the largest deserts in the world. And, and you can scan over the horizon of some of these deserts. 
and you could see nothing for miles, but then you could look a little bit farther or you could take a turn to your left or to your right and literally find deserts where you can just see pops of green, pops of, of, of trees flourishing along the water. And it's funny because in, in kind of Middle Eastern countries, these are called oasises or oasis I. I don't know how you say that. Oh, it's an oasis. Like, that's what it is. And it's funny because if you, if you see the trees in this picture specifically, this is in sub-Saharan Africa, you can't actually see the water at all. All you see are the trees, right? The trees, they stick out and they highlight for you as a student of topography that there's water there. There's actually something living and flowing in the midst of this massive desert. Let me give away the truth of Psalm 1 to you real early. Real freedom comes from real roots in God. Real freedom comes from real roots in God. Just like an oasis, somehow people who follow God's way flourish in the midst of where everything else is dying. Somehow churches that align themselves with God's truth and his ways and his wisdom end up flourishing in the midst of communities where no other churches are flourishing. Here's the tension you and I face here sitting today. Doesn't matter how you grew up, doesn't matter if you're a Christian, doesn't matter if you never ever followed Jesus in your life. Here's the tension you and I sit with. We want freedom without the roots. We want all of the benefits of God's kingdom, all of the benefits of following Jesus without making him Lord, King, Savior, ruler of our lives, of being rooted in him. And friends, it will always lead to the way of the wicked, which the psalmist says is destruction. It's literally the erosion of your soul. If I was a Pentecostal preacher with my hair slipped back, I'd say, baby, you want fruit without the root. That's what I would say. But I'm not doing that because that's not me. But if I was, if I stepped into that lane, that's how I would say it. And maybe that's actually more memorable. So just remember, fruit without the root. But real freedom comes from real roots in God. I, I found this interesting as I was Actually, one of the things I do in study is just trying to find out what is some of the solutions that God offers? What are some of the solutions that the world offers to some of these tensions and these questions? And I just did a quick Google search of how do you find real freedom? Like, how do you get free as a human being? Like, what is freedom and kind of self-actualization? What does that really, really look like? And I want to give you just some, a couple blips and excerpts. Here's just a couple of the headings from one of the articles I found. And to me, this is really a, a, a demonstration of how backwards the wicked way can be. So this is from a Lifehacks uh, article that I found. Here, here's, there was 15 ways you can tell you're really free as a person. Here's how they would define that. Number two, your habits serve you. Number three, you make your own decisions. Number five, you believe in your abilities. Number eight, you have free time. Number 13, you fulfill your needs. Number 15, you have fun. Like, if that's not an indictment on how so many of us get trapped into thinking what real freedom is like, I don't know what is. B because it's so backwards. If you look at the scriptures, real freedom has always come. It always comes from real roots in God, disciplines, habits, obedience patterns in your life that allow you to walk in the way of the blessed person. See, the blessed way prioritizes real freedom, not self-serving freedom. See, the blessed way prioritizes fruit and alignment with God's truth that actually leads to a righteous outcome. But I start to ask the question, okay, if that's what I want, I want real spiritual freedom. I want real soul level freedom. How do I get there? 
I'm a pragmatic person. I'm curious. Okay, give me the next step. What do I do then if I want to get there? And they give it away in the middle of the psalm, which I think is so generous of them. There's two things that you do if you want to have real freedom. Number one, you delight in God's law. And number two, you meditate on God's law. For some of us, it's like, oh, that's it? I don't really like doing those things. I don't like reading God's word. I'm not, I haven't read scripture in weeks. I'm not really sure how I'm supposed to approach it. It feels awkward and weird. They're, they kill people in weird ways. They do weird things with their family. And you're right. The Bible is full. It's, it's rich with stories of broken and imperfect people, just like you and just like me. But the psalmist is saying, if you truly want to understand real deep soul level freedom, you have to delight. Or, or a different way to put that is genuinely enjoy. At any meals or people you like to be with or, or, or shows you like to watch or music you like, that you just genuinely enjoy, this is the exact idea behind the word delight. It's to genuinely enjoy God's word and his ways. It's, it's to really believe, some of us don't believe this yet, but to really believe, God, your way is actually better than mine. Your wisdom is higher than my wisdom. Your, your plans and your thoughts and your, and your patterns for living are actually better than mine. And the second is to meditate. Meditate is simple. I mean, it sounds very kind of Eastern, weird, like yoga and all this weird stuff. And, and maybe that's true. But meditation from a Christian perspective is not just emptying yourself of distraction. Right? That's, if you've ever been to a yoga class or familiar with Eastern meditations or New Age thought, it's like just empty yourself of everything, uh, all of the distractions, all the worries, just get them out of your brain, sit on the ground long enough to where you're just emptied yourself. And, and Christian meditation is the exact opposite. It's not about emptying yourself. It's actually about saying, God, here's your truth. Here's your wisdom. Will you wash that over me? Will you soak that into me? Will you allow me to think and to process and to pray the way you would? It's the actual opposite. So the psalmist is saying you got to delight and to meditate. Um, the immediate thought I have when I think about this word delight for me, it's just food, which shocks zero of you. If you've been around, if you've been around center for 0.2 seconds, you know that I love food, lunch and dinner, best moments of my day. It doesn't matter if I want a million dollars. I have to be like, what are we having for dinner? Like, I'm just curious. Are we going out for dinner with this million dollars or what? Uh, that's why COVID just ruined me. I was like, man, I cannot do any more takeout. I need to go sit in a restaurant with other people. And so I'm excited to do that. But one of the things is my birthday was a few weeks ago uh, that just blessed my heart was that Lindsay loves me so much. She literally got me just a stack of gift cards to Chipotle, just a stack. And, and I'm going to burn through them about two weeks, probably. Like, honestly, there's enough meals for probably a year, but I'm not going to take that long. Because I genuinely enjoy Chipotle. And I remember like a couple years ago when I finally perfected the perfect burrito bowl. Like I remember the moment. I remember where I was, what I was wearing. And I just, I can't believe that, that it took me that long to figure it out. But I remember sitting there and I'm going through the line. And, and I've been through the line literally hundreds of times. Uh, there's people in front of me sometimes, I just, I start to pray. When I see them look up and say, can I have a burrito? I'm like, oh no. This is going to be a while. I want a chicken burrito. It's like, no, you, you missed it. Or if you Subway, the same thing, right? Can I just do a sandwich? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you can. You can. But you got to build it, Jan. You got to participate. This is a give and take here. So anyway, I, got, I get to Chipotle this, this particular day, and I say, you know what? I finally figured out. And, and I don't eat meat, which I know is weird, but I've kind of figured out some of these ways to get around it. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to double up on some of the things I really enjoy about my burrito bowl. And so I, I get in line. He says, what would you like? So I'm glad you asked. 
I sit down, I sit, sit in line, I say, you know what, I'm going to start with brown rice, because every good bowl starts with brown rice. So I say, I'm going to do brown rice, I know you got cilantro in it, I'm good with that, I like it, you season it perfectly, can we double that? So, so I always get double brown rice, and then I move on, and I get pinto beans, because I like beans, and then I get black beans, because I really like beans. So I get doubled up, and that's kind of my protein for the bowl. And then I skip everything else, all the other peripheral, unnecessary things. I skip all of them. Queso, no thank you. Guac, no thank you. But what I do get on there is a bunch of the hot salsa. I say, if you'll give me extra, I'll take extra. That thing is like a hot salsa soup by the end of the time. Like my, my bowl, in my mind, has just become so perfected. This is the flavor soak in. It's so spicy. It's, it's like a sour patch, like sweet, and then, then hits you with the sour. Like that's kind of what it was like. And I, and I just started to really, really enjoy this. I've become affectionately known in my family as the sauce boss, okay? Like, I, I don't eat things without sauce. I don't do any Chipotle without salsa. is just caveman-esque to me. If you do that, I am sorry. I will go with you and fix you if you need. Uh, even this Sunday, we can make that happen. But it's funny because the more I've had that bowl, the more I actually end up enjoying that bowl. And that's how God's word is. See, the more you enjoy and delight in God's way, the more you lose taste for the wicked way. The more you lose taste for things that don't really satisfy you. The more you lose taste for, no, I'm just kidding. The more you lose taste for things that are not the same quality as some of the things that you enjoy. But so many of us have lost the art of spending time in God's word enough to meditate or enjoy it or delight in it. And we miss out. This is why so many of us, yes, this last week, actually took on the Psalm 139 challenge. And we sat there with our phones, and I did this, I think, five days out of the seven. And I sat there, and for a minute and 39 seconds, I said, God, will you just wash over me, my identity in you, my, my foundation in you, that I have stability and security and belonging in you? I don't need to form my identity outside of you. You've actually given me an identity as a, as a child, as a son of God. And I was amazed at the end of that minute and 39 seconds of just enjoying God's word, how I was slowly and surely changed. And it changed my perspective on some big decisions, on some hard moments with my beautiful six-week daughter who has a way to scream that just gets into my ears like no one else can scream. Like There was just some moments I said, man, I'm really glad that I spent time today in God's word. But just like the blessed way prioritizes real freedom, the wicked way prioritizes their brand of freedom too. And you've seen this, right? And this is what the psalmist is saying. He's saying the company of mockers, and mocking is not like sitting like kind of laughing at God. Mocking is essentially saying, you know what? God's way isn't better than my way. I'm just going to do my way. And you've got people in your life, and, and maybe you have been a person, and maybe you sit here today and you're a person who just knows that, yeah, I, I've done that. And the wicked way is what the psalmist tries to point out and give us some caution here that it always will lead to destruction. It will destroy your soul if you choose your way over God's way because he created you and loved you. It leads, the wicked way prioritizes and ends up with sin and, it, and ultimately it's unrooted because real freedom comes from real roots in God. It's essentially, what I think is funny is you can see this in advertising too. Like I took some marketing classes in college, or before college. It was really interesting just to find out the way that advertisers think. And really, if advertisers could get you to change your thinking, they can get you to do a whole bunch of things. Like if they can convince you you need a Big Mac, there's a really good chance at least sometime in the week, you're going to find a way in the McDonald's drive-thru and end up putting a Big Mac in your mouth. It's incredible. And it's funny because take McDonald's for instance, the whole phrase, I'm loving it, 
is literally affirming any choice you have on the McDonald's menu. It's like, number one with cheese, I'm loving it. Like, that's kind of like whatever you want, I'm loving it. And what they should say is, fat sodium calories, I'm loving it. Like, slowly dying from a heart attack because of these french fries, I'm loving it. Like, it's just totally affirming of whatever you think is right is right. And the psalm we're just reading is saying that's not actually how the world works. That's not how faith and journeying with Jesus actually works. And I was reflecting on this just in my own life and thinking about how this last year, some of the just deep challenges that the pandemic and isolation and all these tough decisions we were walking through organizationally, as a culture, as a community, and I was just thinking about how is it, like God, how is it that that's in the midst of COVID-19, some of our faith was strengthened, it was bolstered, we, we got deeper with God, and there's others of us who are not even sitting here today anymore, whose faith just completely disintegrated and eroded can I ask, how is that? How is it that you and I can sit through the same sermons, the same songs, the same prayers, the same Sundays, and for some of us, it's a strengthening thing, and others of us, we eventually fade into the background, and we, our, our faith erodes. I think the answer for that is Psalm 1, is that if you want real freedom, you want real spiritual health and vitality and fruit, you have to place yourself in, in God's way, to root yourself in him. That's why uh, the picture that the psalmist gives towards the end of this, talking about chaff, is so helpful because chaff, even in Middle Eastern countries, they still do this. Literally, they take a big basket of grain, stuff that they can use for actual products, and then literally shake it, and the chaff is so unattached, so unconnected to the real good stuff, it just flies away. It literally blows away in the wind. They don't even have to like sit there and go through, is this good or bad? It's just like it just floats away. And that's exactly how the psalmist chooses to describe the wicked, people who are far from God and choose their own way over God's way. It's like they're unconnected. They're unrooted. They don't have any fruit to their lives. And here's what I think is interesting. You can literally take this psalm and you could trace the story of God's people from Israel to the New Testament, even the book of Acts, God's church's birth, Acts 2, the Spirit comes and empowers them for the mission of God. What do the Roman officials and a lot of the people surrounding the Christians say? They call them the way over and over again. It's like four different times early on in the story. They say, yeah, followers of the way. Because Jesus said, right, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to real freedom except through me. And the Christians were okay with being called that because I think they recognized our hope isn't just in better law-keeping. If you take that from Psalm 1, you're missing the point. It's not in just being a better law follower, being a better rule follower, just checking the Bible plan box and, and moving on with your day. It's actually in the person of Jesus. He is the way. The way to real freedom is in aligning your life with him and rooting your life and he and him, isn't it interesting that some of the most profound moments in the Christian story have to do with trees? The Garden of Eden, walking with, in relationship with God, perfect communion, perfect freedom, brokenness, the cross being the restorer of that freedom, hung on a tree. I mean, you, just, you, you see the story, new heaven and new earth. If you read Revelation, if you've ever read Revelation, you know one of the most beautiful images prophesied in Ezekiel, by the way, and fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus will be a big, fat tree planted by a stream of living water. 
And God is saying your life can be like that. Your life can be a taste of heaven right here on earth, not just for you, but for the people you interact with this summer. Can I ask you the question, what way will you take this summer? It's July. It's, it's a holiday weekend. You may have family in town. You may have come to church to escape the family you have in town. I don't know what you did. But, but all of us sit before us two paths, death, life, God's way, wicked, the wicked way, our way, or the way of Jesus. And I think that's a question worth wrestling with. I can't answer that for you. But I really do believe that the Holy Spirit of God who's interacting with you and loves you and is designed to, to encourage and challenge and show you that way is probably speaking and encouraging you to, to, to wrestle with that question. What way will you take this summer? Psalm 1 gives us a blueprint for real freedom, for real life, real fruit. But you have to decide, am I going to align with that? Am I going to stay connected to him, or am I going to choose my own way and live disconnected? I want to close with just thinking about, I was wrestling with this text, and thinking about just the summer and the Psalms. How many of these Psalms have just meant something so personal to me, and have encouraged me, and just God has brought them, some of times from, from your mouth to my ears, when, in a moment where I needed it. And I remember uh, my first year of vocational ministry, I knew absolutely nothing about being a pastor. I'm shocked that they ever hired me full-time, to be quite honest with you. I'm very blessed, but I'm shocked. I was like, you're offering me a full-time job, and you're going to give me money to do this? That's incredible. Like, either you're the dumbest person on earth, or you see something in me I don't see. Like, that's how I felt. And I remember part of the deal was that, okay, John, if you join this, this staff, and this was in Detroit at the time, it was an older church, and they said, if you join the staff, part of the rhythm of this, of this church, if you're on the staff, is that for every two weeks, you were on rotation. You're kind of on call if there's a pastoral emergency. So someone has a heart attack or there's a funeral that needs to be done or a baby's born or whatever, like someone calls the church office, you're on the phone Friday, Saturday, Sunday, all your days off, you are on. I said, okay, like that's great. And so my two-week thing was coming up and I was so nervous. I knew nobody in this church. They were all older than me and I was really freaked out. This was gonna go... I was just going to be the most awkward fail and just quit that day if someone actually gave me a call on that phone. But I'm sitting there, it's a weekend, and I'm just praying, God, no one gets sick, no one gets sick, no one gets sick, no one go to the hospital, no one have a baby, no one have a few, no one need me. I just was so nervous about it. I didn't know what I was going to do if I faced that moment. I didn't even know where the hospitals were in Detroit at the time. And so the phone rings, and it's someone who's connected to our worship team, and they were having a major surgery. And to me, I found out who it was. I was like, oh, this is easy. This is a tough, one of the toughest guys. This guy had three different tours in Iraq. Like, he's legit. I'm afraid of him. <laughs> I'm sure he's going to be totally fine. But I'll give him a text or call and just say, hey, you want me to come pray with you at the hospital? He's probably going to say no. He's a tough guy. Uh, he doesn't pick up the phone when I call back. as his wife. His name, her name was Julie. And she said, hey, Brad really needs somebody to come to the hospital. Uh, he's got this surgery in the morning, and he is freaking out. Will you go? I can't go. Will you go? I said, absolutely, Julie. I'll be there. Drive to the hospital. It was not a life-threatening surgery. It was kind of a, it was a knee replacement or hip replacement. I don't recall. But, but I, I sat in that waiting room, and finally I get to check in and go to the, the kind of pre-op room he's in. And he is like almost literally shaking. Big, tough dude, again. Like not the kind of person you would think would be so afraid, so fearful. 
He's sitting there just freaking out. And I was like, I'm walking in this room and I did not expect that. It caught me off guard. And so immediately I'm going through my pastoral brain. I was like, what do you say? Like, how do I encourage this guy? I've got nothing. I don't know what to tell him. I don't know what to do. I don't know how, I've never been in this situation. Our family's been in this situation. I, he's just sitting here. I don't really know him either. It's like, what do I say? And immediately God brought to mind Psalm 34. And Psalm 34 says, right in the middle of that Psalm, it's a Psalm I had grown up hearing that I, that I had read before, that God just kind of drew it out of my bad memory. And Psalm 34, right in the middle says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. I said, Brad, I don't really know what to say right now. Can I just pray for you? I know how to pray. Like, I'll just pray for you. And I prayed that and literally the room changed. The room changed. I, I cannot explain it to you. I'm sitting there and Brad goes from shaking nervous to calm, to peace-filled, to confident, and for the next 30 minutes after we finished prayer, we just sat and joked and talked, talked about life. They, they started to wheel him out for the surgery. I left. Surgery was totally fine. And I really haven't even thought about that until I began wrestling with the power of, of meditating and delighting on God's word and the freedom that brings. That, that brought freedom to Brad's hospital room. That brought freedom to him and Julie having to walk through this surgery process. That brought freedom and not the kind of world freedom. Like Brad had fought for worldly freedoms and I'm thankful for that. But in that moment, he needed something greater and deeper and bigger. And so I don't know what it means for you to enjoy God's word this summer. I don't know what it means for you to walk in the blessed way versus the wicked way. I'm just asking you, will you wrestle with the question? Will you let it mess you up a little bit this summer? Will you process through what, what, it, what it practically mean for me to do that? Because real freedom, friends, comes from real roots in God. You're not going to get it any other way. And so I want to pray for us and just ask. I know God needs to do that work in me still. There's probably some of you sitting here watching. You need that work today. And so I want to pray in that direction. So Jesus, we do. We really do come before you. And we thank you that you are offering us the way of life and freedom and mercy today. And we hold on to that. We pray that you'd be magnified and glorified, exalted in our lives so much so that we encounter a life we couldn't have got any other place. Think about Peter's words, Father, Jesus, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words of freedom and hope and grace. You are our only chance. And so today, July 4th, in the midst of celebrating American freedom, we ask God, would you give us a deeper level of spiritual freedom today? you set us on your path, on your way, would you teach us today? Would you encourage us, whether it's taking practical steps or wrestling through this question with a friend or a mentor or a discipleship group or, or uh, just alone in, in the quietness of, of moments with you, I just pray that, God, would you stir that question, so what way will we take? Help us to enjoy your word. You have the words of eternal life. We hold on to you, God. We worship you and trust you with all of these things. I ask that you'd seal them in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Churches, we respond.